Hello and welcome to Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we're taking a look at Vault of the Vampire, book 38 in the fighting fantasy series written by Keith Martin and illustrated by Martin McKenna. It's sure to be a spooky old time, but there's a little bit of news to get out of the way before we get into it. Firstly, and most importantly, I have to thank a new patron. This is a kind soul who's gone to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and pledged as little as a single English pound to support my nonsense. All patrons receive a little parcel of gaming material by way of a thank you. The list is currently up to three game books and three complete role-playing games. So, Jep Mullick or Jeppe Mullick, I'm really sorry, I should have asked you how to pronounce your name and I didn't. Thank you very much for your support. It is deeply appreciated and I hope you enjoy your gaming goodies. I'm also currently working on a new game book and I've just made a start on the actual process of writing the thing. The planning is all done and now it's just a case of putting words together until the first draft is complete. I'm looking forward to seeing how this one shakes out. It's a game book that sends contestants to a strange fantasy world in search of adventure, danger and fabulous prizes. The second bit of news is very exciting to me because I'm currently in the process of finalising the first season of a brand new podcast. One thing that's great about having people back me on Patreon is that it makes additional podcast material possible. We've already gone from having no bonus episodes on this podcast to doing one each and every month. And since I passed the milestone of 25 patrons... I've wanted to provide some additional content which isn't strictly gamebook related and which, like the bonus episodes, will be available to everyone whether they support me financially or not. My new podcast, Popular Antiquarian, will be a weekly podcast initially running for a season of six episodes and each one will be looking at some bit of pop culture media from before the year 2000. Each episode will be short and easily digestible and I'll be covering a wide range of different mediums. The first season covers topics as broad as films inspired by the Red Scare in 1950s America, horror comics and cartoons based on beloved movies. If there's sufficient interest, I'll do another one. But regardless of whether two people or 200 people download the first episode, I'm committed to completing the first season as thanks for the support I'm lucky enough to receive for this podcast. Hopefully, it'll be launching early August. Right, let's get down to the proper business. I'm really looking forward to this book because I am a big horror fan, and in particular, I'm a big fan of Hammer Horror, that gothic school of historical melodrama and bright, bright red blood. The cover of Vault of the Vampire could have come from a 1970s movie poster, as we see a knockoff Dracula looming in front of a dark-haired woman lying on a tomb in a cavernous vault. It's classic Les Edwards art, and it promises a great deal, but will it deliver? We've already seen gothic horror cross over to fantasy role-playing with the Ravenloft module that sent heroic adventurers into a thinly-veiled castle Dracula to do battle with the arch-fiend Count Strahd von Zarevich. It turned out to be a brilliant idea that spawned an entire setting for Dungeons & Dragons, which mashed up the tropes of fantasy gaming and horror to great effect. Fighting Fantasy has already done one straight horror book, House of Hell, and mashed up horror and fantasy tropes with the excellent Beneath Nightmare Castle. 
I see no reason why this shouldn't be a really good time. This is a match made in heaven. This is Keith Martin's second book for fighting fantasy, with his first Stealer of Souls being solidly enjoyable, while sticking closely to the template of previous fantasy adventures. It's nice to see him spreading his wings just a bit here. Martin McKenna, the illustrator, is also on his second outing after Daggers of Darkness, and a swift glance through suggests he's produced much more accomplished work here, something which McKenna himself did actually state in relation to this book. Now let's have a little bit of a look at the rules. Skill, stamina and luck are all present and correct, but we've also got a new stat, faith, which indicates, and I quote, your purity of heart and the strength of your belief in the forces of good, which feels like a decent summary of faith in a fantasy setting. Faith can be used to overcome certain monsters, but will also attract the attention of dark powers, so it can be both a good and a bad thing. Your faith is generated by adding 3 to a d6 roll, so ranges from 4 to 9. Unlike the core stats, your faith can also be raised above its starting score. The rules text also makes ominous reference to afflictions, with which we can be, well, afflicted, but we'll deal with that if and when it becomes relevant. Faith is something that we haven't seen explicitly modelled in fighting fantasy thus far. There's been plenty of evil gods, the occasional helpful priest of a good deity, but we haven't tackled these oh-so-murky waters directly. As someone who wrote an entire role-playing game about faith, I'll be interested to see if this goes beyond being simply another resource. Otherwise, our equipment is fighting fantasy standard with leather armour, a sword, and the traditional ten provisions in a backpack. I've rolled up a character, who I've called Fructose Quarate, because that sounds like a heroic name, and they have the following stats. Skill 10, Stamina 22, Luck 10, and Faith 7. So, above average, but only just above average. With all the bookkeeping done, I think we should dive straight into Vault of the Vampire. Background. Rumours of great wealth and treasure have lured you west of Femprey in the Old World to the forbidding land of Moristatia, home of unscalable peaks clad in ice and snow obscured by great swaths of freezing mist. The air is cold and damp and you are dressed in furs to keep out the chill. Hunched in a swaying coach heading north towards Mordvania, you wonder whether any of the rumours you have heard have any truth in them. People hereabouts are poorly fed and clothed, and this hardly seems like a place of great riches. Still, perhaps that means that the treasures are still hidden and that the local folk haven't found them. I mean, to me, it means that there's a parasite class extracting extraordinary amounts of wealth from the local peasantry. When places are described as being extremely wealthy, they almost always mean some people are extremely wealthy and a lot of people are very poor, especially in a pseudo-medieval setting. You are aroused from your reverie as the coach creaks to a halt. The coachman opens the door and begins lowering trunks and bags from the roof. You step out into a murky twilight. A thick winter fog is drawing in round the little coaching village of Leverhelven, where you will rest tonight. 
The tavern is small and hardly luxurious, but the food is hot and the mulled wine is spiced and refreshing. But the local people, wary of strangers, talk little. After you enter, the tavern door is barred and the windows are already shuttered. The place has a strange name, the heart's blood, but this doesn't look like hunting country, except for those seeking bears or wolves for their pelts. You ask the tavern keeper how the inn got its name, and a deathly hush descends in the room. He turns away, refusing to speak to you. You wonder how a polite and innocent question can have made him react in such a way. What's more, a man sitting by the fire turns round and spits at your feet. So, uh, the kind of warm welcome that I'm entirely used to receiving in country pubs. Back when I was a younger man, my hair was very long, and I generally dressed in head-to-foot leather, regardless of the weather. And I was going on holiday with my then partner, and we went into a pub in the middle of nowhere, and I swear, all conversation just completely stopped as we entered. It was like something out of American Werewolf in London. An old woman swathed in shawls and a peasant smock looks over you and says, Foreigners don't know no better. You take her over a drink and ask her to tell you more. At least she's talking to you. Which is more friendly than anyone else here is. She gulps greedily of the warm wine. Taint no heart's blood, stranger. We're never called that till they change the sign outside. Tis the heart's blood, see? H-E-A-R-T. That's what too many folk round here has given up. Their heart's blood. So I guess I should point out that it's originally spelt like the dear H-A-R-T. So uh, yes, uh, puns working astonishingly well in an audio format there. Hopefully that made sense. The low murmur of voices that had begun once more is completely silenced. Many people are casting fierce looks at you and the old woman, and the barman bellows at her to be silent. But her face is flushed with the warmth and the wine, and she says she will not be unheard. "'Tis the Count, damn his black heart. Folk vanish from the village, they do, and are never seen again. The Count takes them up to the castle, to be sure, and there they die a terrible death. Terrible. There's folk that have heard the screams from the place. Screams as from the souls in hell itself. Now tears run down her old weathered face. Didn't he take my granddaughter only yesterday? Didn't we see the coach and the headless horseman in the village? My poor little Natasha. Such a beautiful, gentle girl taken by the fiend himself, and not a man in this godforsaken place brave enough to go up to the castle and save her. Embarrassed voices murmur round the room as sparks fly from the fire. The crackling of the burning wood seems to emphasise the old woman's desperate plea. I beg you, sir, to rescue her. She's only seventeen, and she's done no harm to anyone. She bursts into tears again. A tall, red-haired man gets up from a table opposite and approaches you. You see he has only one arm, the right sleeve of his tunic being pinned to his chest. Stranger, we take you for a wanderer, a seeker after adventure. What old Svetlana says is true, the Count is a terrible and evil soul. And Castle Hadric is a place of horror. 
I would have tried to slay him myself, but for one obvious reason. You nod as he glances down from his empty sleeve. Will you help us? From my own days as a warrior, I have some gold put by, and it's yours gladly if you'll help. The eyes of all present turn to you, imploring your assistance. You are about to nod your agreement to this proposal when the door of the tavern bursts open. The people inside cry out in fear as an icy blast whips through the room. Outside in the mist you can make out a black coach with four jet black steeds prancing and whinnying. And in the doorway stands a spectral figure. Bony fingers extend from black sleeves and he beckons you. But he says nothing. How could he? He has no head. So that's the background. At three and a bit pages, that's one of the shorter backgrounds we've come across, but it does a very good job of setting the scene and setting the mood and letting us know that we are in proper hammer horror territory. Yeah, like it very much. So what now? You follow the beckoning figure outside into the swirling mists. It leaps up to the driver's seat of the black coach and the carriage door swings open. The steeds prance expectantly, their breath steaming in the cold air. Will you attack the headless horseman, get in the coach, ignore the coach and ask a local person how to get to the castle? Well, on the one hand, as an adventurer, I feel as though I should probably try and give this headless entity a bit of a stabbing and the sensible part of me thinks that ignoring the coach and asking to see if there's an alternative direction to the castle is probably the sensible move but I love me some gothic horror and in particular I'm a huge fan of the film Nosferatu and this reminds me so much of the opening of Nosferatu so I'm actually going to get in the coach because that is what the narrative demands of me as who am I to turn down the demands of the narrative. You clamber into the coach and the horses set off at a gallop making no sound as they move. You settle back into a comfortable seat draped in black. Looking through the heavy purple curtained windows you see nothing outside but thick swirling fog but the wolf Howls you hear send shivers down your spine. So we need to roll one dice and add two to the number rolled. I'm not sure which is the good outcome. We need to compare it to our faith. And if it's greater, we continue our journey. And if it's less than our faith, something else happens. So let's see what occurs. Okay, I roll an eight and I add two to make ten, which is already more than my faith of seven. So we continue the journey. Excellent. Nice to see the faith mechanic introduced early doors. That is a good thing to do. If you're going to create additional stats, you need to make sure that they justify their existence. And also you need to try and give a flavour of what they're about as soon as you can. And here, faith. Getting an outing on the second paragraph we've turned to. So we continue our journey until the coach stops close by the castle and allows you to dismount before vanishing into the fog. You walk along as far as the base of a narrow trail which leads up a steep incline, and suddenly 
you walk out of the fog into a completely clear area. Starkly illuminated by the three-quarter moon stands the brooding Castle Hadric. You can walk up and enter the half-open front gates or walk round the outside to see what you can make of the place. Again, I feel so trammelled by the demands of the genre. I cannot bring myself to do anything other than walk up and enter the half-open front gate, even though I know this is almost certainly a very bad plan. You put your shoulder to the heavy wooden gates, and they open with a creak which sets your nerves on edge. You walk through a small entrance area into a large courtyard. Facing you, you observe great brass decorated doors across the courtyard, and past the entrance to which what looks like the family crypt. There are also two doors to the west of you and a door just round the corner which opens into a southern part of the main building. So we've got the choice. We can go for the brass doors at the north, open the door in the south, open the door in the upper west or the lower west. Or we can head to the crypt. Okay. Um, of these, the closest thing to a left turn is the west, but we've got the choice of an upper west or lower west door. Let's go for the lower west door. Start on the ground floor and work up. You open the doors into a wolf pen and two large wolves glower at you and lick their lips. Having slightly taken uh, the author of Interstellar Terror to task for profligate use of exclamation marks, I feel it necessary to point out that I think every single paragraph I've come to so far has had an exclamation mark somewhere in it. Um, it's not just amateur creators who can fall foul of excessive use of exclamation marks. Published writers can be just as excessive. So we can either attack the wolves, shut the door and get away, or search for something to use against the wolves other than your sword. I'll be amazed if there's anything of any value in the pen with the wolves. There is a picture, by the way, of the wolves. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. They look quite ferocious. The problem with doing wolves, I think, is making them look both authentically wolvy and not making them look like good dogs. And these do look wolfy. They do look a bit menacing, but they do kind of also look like good dogs. I think I'm just going to try and shut the door in order to get away. So it's a skill test. I roll a four, which is less than my skill. You manage to slam the door in the face of the salivating wolves and they scrabble at it hungrily and begin to howl. You decide that this may raise some alarm, so it's time to get out of the open space of the courtyard. You can head for the northerly doors or the door to the south if you haven't opened that door earlier. Ooh, a bit of a clue there. Uh, I guess we will take the, the clue that we can maybe return to the courtyard and go and open the south door. You open the door, it is very dark within, and you need your lantern to see by. Peering in, you can make out sacks of grain and some scurrying rats. There is a door in the west wall of this storeroom. Okay, we can move to the west door, or we can leave and approach the crypt, or leave and approach the north doors in the courtyard. So I think we'll have a look at the west door. You are just getting close to the door when the rats start to squeak. Then they rush forward to attack you. There are too many for you to fight. You can either open the west door and go through or retreat back into the courtyard. 
So let's um, retreat back into the courtyard, I think. Don't like the idea of being trapped potentially in a room with only one exit by a horde of ravenous rats. The rats nip you with their sharp yellowed teeth, lose two stamina points, but you get out safely and shut them in behind you. Stamina now 20. Now you can either head for the crypt if you haven't been there before, or head for the brass doors to the north. Against my better judgement, I am going to investigate the crypt. I will say I'm enjoying how this is written. He's struck a really good balance between evocative, if slightly over-exclamatory, prose and conciseness. I feel as though I know what's going on, but I think it's going to be quite pleasant to go back through on a subsequent playthrough, um, which may sound very defeatist of me, but I mean, you've listened to however many episodes to get to this point, you know the chances of me actually getting to the end on a first run through are minimal. The crypt has a stone entrance with steps leading down. Hideous gargoyle heads with fiendish grins stare balefully down at you, and the heavy iron railing gates are locked. Behind you, you can hear snarls somewhere behind the doors to the west and decide not to investigate these. We've got some options. We can try and force the gates to the crypt, open the southern door, which we've already done, or head for the brass door to the north. There is a picture of the door to the crypt. I'm pretty sure I could have pictured it myself. Um, it looks exactly like you'd imagine. Slight kind of Ian Miller-esque vibe to it maybe with the various gargoyles but yeah probably a slightly superfluous illustration let's try and force the gate the gates are made of solid inch thick iron bars you cannot open them roll one die and add two is the total less or equal to your faith roll a six it is more than my faith you abandon your attempt to get into the crypt you see a flare of light from under the brass doors to the north. You could either investigate these doors or run to the south door if you haven't already done so. Uh, I've already done that, so I can't. So I have no option but to investigate the brass doors to the north. You push open the brass doors and walk into a well-lit entrance hall, which is deserted. Floor mosaics and wall hangings of plain black and red give the chamber a sombre appearance. And for a moment you think you heard a faint moaning sound. There are three exits from the hall. So we've got north, east or west. So we already tried to go left. Let's go right for a change and head east. Along the eastern passageway there is a door to the north. And the passageway turns south just beyond it. There is another door facing you at the junction of the east and south corridors. So we can either... Open the north door, open the door facing us on the east, or follow the corridor round to the south. Let's open the door facing us. Opening the door, you hear sizzling and spitting noises. Peering carefully around the half-open door, you see an extraordinary assembly of vessels, jars, containers, and instruments of brass, iron, and glass, standing on tables and shelves. Oil burners keep vessels of cloudy, bubbling liquids on the boil, and there is a strange, metallic acid smell. Watching you closely 
is a small green winged humanoid creature sitting on a shelf on the wall. It is playing with a small bronze wand which sparkles and crackles. Do you want to try attacking it or talking to it? There is a picture of what seems to be the alchemist's lair. It's really good. Absolutely crammed with things. It looks unbelievably busy. And the impish creature looks somewhat malevolent, but not 100% so. So I am going to try talking to it. The little creature asks you if you've come to see his master. You nod in mute agreement. Well, don't just stand there. Go on in. He's not too busy. I'm sure the potions will be soon ready. You realise that this is an alchemist's laboratory and that the small winged creature is a magical creature, a homunculus. It gestures you to a door in the south which you open. You enter a large room filled with all sorts of strange equipment, tables and charts showing the planets in the heavens, varieties of herbs, rock formations and lots else besides. All this is strewn over benches and desks, pinned to the walls and even scattered over the floor. Sitting at one desk is a white-haired, tall, thin man, with pince-nez glasses perched precariously on his beaked nose. He is poring over some intricate diagrams and muttering to himself. He looks up at you. Uh, pleased to meet you, I suppose. I'm Karl Heinz Mataus, alchemist in residence. Something I can do for you? He appears unarmed and looks like a kindly old man. He looks back at his work, clearly not interested in you. We can attack him, we can engage him in conversation. We can leave through the door in the west wall of this room. Um, I like that we're constantly being given the choice of attacking people on one level. But on the other hand, I think sometimes you can go too far. Sometimes the affordances, I guess, of the environment, to go back to a thing I talked about at unnecessary length on a previous podcast, mitigate strongly against certain types of action. I feel as though attacking friendly-looking old men doesn't feel very much like an adventure thing to do. I could be wrong. I mean, it's entirely possible that earlier in the adventure in one of the areas I failed to properly explore, there was some kind of clue that this gentleman, Karl Heinz Mataus, is actually a wrong one. And indeed, he does live in a vampire's castle. Anyway, regardless, I'm going to engage him in conversation. The alchemist says little, although he does tell you that he's employed by Katerina, the Count's sister, to repair potions and powders which enable her to keep her youthful appearance, together with another treatment which Karl Heinz seems deliberately to avoid mentioning. Katerina looks very young for a woman of 76, he mutters laconically. You can't really ask about the Count and how to kill him. Karl Heinz might tell someone what you're up to, and there's little else you can get out of him, but he could be helpful to you if you have the major lycanthropy affliction. Major being in brackets for some reason. I do not, so I have no option but to leave through the west door, so I'm guessing one of those wolves could have bit me and turned me into a werewolf, which is another awesome gothic horror trope. I really want at some point to write a game book in which you're a werewolf. I did start sketching down ideas for it, but 
trying to work out how to do phases of the moon in an interesting way is actually really hard. Back in the corridor, you can open a door on the west side opposite the alchemist's room if you haven't done so before, or go to the far southern end of the passage and open the door. I think the west side just leads back into the main corridor. So we will go to the south end. You open the door and a dark, musty odour of stale air greets you. You must use your lantern to see unless you have a magic sword. And now you realise that you are at the foot of the southeast tower. Roll one die and add three. Is the total less than or equal to your faith? Six. It is less than or equal to my faith. Drifting into the chamber from a grill set into the floor is a smoky, apparitional figure radiating a hideous, chilly malice. A wraith. Roll one die and add three and compare to your faith. I get a three again, which gives me a total of six, which is less than my faith. The wraith shrinks back from you, its wispy clawed arms scrabbling at the air close by your face, but your faith protects you. Now you see a wooden spiral staircase leading upwards in this bare and dusty chamber. You could easily escape the wraith that way, however, since it is an evil thing, you would prefer to destroy it. You have heard, though, that only a magical weapon can harm a wraith. So if you don't have one, it could be dangerous to attack. So we can attack the evil wraith, and I don't have a magic weapon, so I suspect it will go very badly. Or we can go up the tower, or we can return to the entrance hall. Let's go up the tower. Leave the wraith to its wraithy business. Always wonder what these sort of ephemeral, intelligent, undead creatures that lurk in catacombs and castles do during the downtime. I mean, you're on your own. Are they just sat there thinking about how bored they are or how evil they are? Is it just a malignant spirit going, oh, I'm the most evil that there's ever been. Oh, there's never been anyone more evil than me. Oh, so evil I am. So very, very evil. Oh, there's an adventurer. Answers on a postcard. You ascend the narrow, steeply sloping wooden stairs until you come to a landing before a wooden door which is barred and decorated with warding glyphs of amber and silver. Something is scratching on the other side of the door. There is a distinctly unpleasant charnel smell here. You can summon your courage and open the door, or retreat downstairs, go back and open the north door in the entrance hall. I am curious. Ah, oh, I'm always curious, which is a good thing. Otherwise, I don't think I'd be doing adventure game books because if you don't have any curiosity, you can have, I guess, read the opening paragraphs and go, this sounds dangerous and put the book down. But I am curious, so I'm going to open the door. You open the door and gaze into a low-ceilinged room with some narrow stone steps visible on the other side. Bones and horrifying bloodied lumps of flesh and gristle lie around the room and the occupant, a huge ghoul, intends that you should be the next feast. So, no need to describe a ghoul. We already know what a ghoul looks like, except that no two fantasy authors can actually agree on the specifics of what a ghoul looks like. So, a description would have been nice. They're one of those very common monsters that varies a surprising amount, depending on who's depicting it. Still, we've got to roll one die and add four. Ten. 
total is greater than my faith. The ghoul springs at you with his filth-encrusted and bloodied talons, rank breath hot on your face. Its eyes are miniature infernos of fiery hatred and hunger for living flesh. There is a picture of the ghoul, and it's, I'd say, a reasonably standard ghoul. Uh, it's got no nose. It's just a bragged hole in the face where the nose should be. Sort of pointy ears, the traditional sharp claws and rags for clothes. Yeah, it's a really good bit of art, I'll be honest. It's a really good bit of art. Uh, the huge ghoul has a skill of eight and a stamina of eleven, and something bad will happen if we're hit three times, which I assume is the traditional paralysing touch of the ghoul. So, with a vague sense of trepidation, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the ghoul, and it managed to hit me precisely once, reducing my stamina to 20 points. I have to say I am really liking how the faith is being used, and the fact that the author has considered how powerful creatures might be able to overcome your faith better than weaker creatures, that's really nice. I'm enjoying how much it's been used as well. It's, it's really a central mechanic in these early stages. You climb the stone steps, cobwebbed and filthy, past growths of mould and fungus on the walls and ascend to the top of the tower. Moonlight streams into the circular chamber through tinted glass, and it seems almost as if the shadows in this place are skulking and watching. Opposite you, bathed in moonlight, is a young girl sprawled across a chair, bound by her wrists and ankles with a mesh of fine cobwebs. They could be a lot stronger than they look, perhaps even magical. She is very pretty indeed, with long curly auburn hair and a fine smooth complexion. There is a picture of the pretty girl who looks, yeah, I would say pretty but also mysterious. The webbing looks very sinister. Anyway, we've got to do another faith test, this time adding four, giving a total of ten. Looking at the sleeping girl, will you try to wake her up, search the room, or leave here and return to the north door in the entrance hall? I'm very much liking how easy it is to backtrack in this adventure. The author's really thought about where it makes sense to backtrack to. And the layout of the castle has been quite cleverly designed in the sense that I guess each sort of little wing is its own relatively linear section which makes backtracking to a central hub make much more sense. Sometimes linear design is the right design and this is one of those occasions and it's geographically linear there's quite a variety of things you can do at each location. So I'm going to try and wake her up. Um, excuse me you seem to be Sellotape to a chair with cobwebs. You're right. You try saying something, even shaking the girl, but she does not awaken. You could try the time-honoured method of kissing her to make her wake up, ignore her and get on with searching the room, or leave the whole area, return to the entrance hall and open the north door there. Kissing people to wake them up is one of those things that's dated really badly. <laughs> I am going to try it, because it's a classic fairy story trope, but 
on the basis that it will be a very chaste peck on the cheek. Oh, another faith test, this time adding five. No, that's more than my faith. Oh no, I've kissed her on the lips. The girl kisses you back. Unfortunately, this involves sinking her teeth firmly into your throat. Okay, no, I leaned in and kissed her on the cheek, placing my neck next to her face, and she bit me. So, lose two stamina points, which, you know, fair enough. I think if someone leaned over me while I was sleeping and kissed me, who wasn't my husband, I'd probably want to bite them as well. So, kudos to the author for modelling a sensible response to being non-consensually kissed. Oh, we also have to fight the girl, and we must roll one die. And that's the number of attack rounds that... Uh, throat will go on bleeding, losing one stamina on each round while the bleeding lasts. So I've rolled a one, which is good. So I'm going to lose one stamina point. I might as well take that off now. 15 stamina. Let's go to the fight. You are now fighting a direly evil undead creature, and the Baovan Sith casts a spell at you. Determine whether you or the Baovan Sith has the higher attack strength for this attack round. It has a skill of 9. Its attack strength is... I roll a 7, 16. I roll a 6, which is a 16 as well. So we draw... Um, and it doesn't actually tell you what happens if you draw, which is a bit of an oversight. Always remember that any opposed roll can be drawn. Uh, I guess we just run another attack round and see what happens this time. So the Baovan Sith rolls a 5, giving it an attack score of 14. I roll an 8, giving it an attack score of 18. So I will deal 2 damage to it and spoil the spell. The evil magic wielder smiles as she draws a razor-sharp dagger, its blue crystalline blade set into a silver handle. She is very nimble and swift and dodges your blows. She will not be easy to overcome. So the Baovan Sith has a skill of nine and seven stamina remaining. I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Baovan Sith. It reduced me to 11 stamina points, so I'm going to take the opportunity to... Slurp down some instant ramen and return my stamina to 15. I now have nine provisions remaining. I can now search the room. Do you have the lycanthropy affliction or the major lycanthropy affliction? I have neither. Good news for me. I am having a lovely time with this one. Checking carefully, you find a small secret door in one wall. It conceals a wall alcove from which you draw out a white shield with a red cross. This is the shield of faith. Gain one faith point and one luck point for finding it and add it to your possessions. So faith is now eight. Luck was already at maximum of ten. That is some good news. Now you must leave the tower, go to the entrance hall and open the north door there. You push open the north door in the entrance hall and see a brightly lit corridor stretching out before you. The floor is tiled and there are small watercolour paintings hung on the wall. Before you there is a door on the east wall and further along one on the west wall. Between the two there is a side passage to the east. 
There is also a door facing you at the north end of the corridor. Oof, lots of choice again, but I am finding the layout of this pretty easy to grasp mentally. I think we'll go down this eastern side passage. That's the most intriguing option I can think of. After progressing some 10 feet, you come level with a door on the north side of the passage. And then the dimly lit tiled corridor continues to a door at the end. Will you open the north door or the door further along? Um, I guess we might be able to get into another tower if we go to the door further along, assuming that the castle is vaguely symmetrical. So let's go to the door further along. You see that there is a plaque on the door with the inscription Dr. Karl Adenauer. You knock politely and a wavering but sharp voice answers, Come! We really are doing well for old men thus far in this adventure. You step in and see a grey-haired middle-aged man, okay, in robes, sitting at a desk covered with papers neatly stacked up in piles. The room is chock full of books and papers and the man peers at you over a crystal ball mounted on a dragon's foot which stands on his desk. Dr. Adenauer, young man, he says rather needlessly, sage in the employ of Count Rainer Heydrich, wretched man, never gives me enough money for my research. These important books cost a fortune. He indicates a wall full of bookcases with a sweep of his hand. He looks grumpy. And he isn't hostile. At least, he doesn't seem to be. We can attack him, as always. We can talk to him. Also, as always, we can leave. Let's talk to him. You are wondering what to say, but the sage talks freely of his own accord. Mostly, he goes on about how mean the count is and how he, the sage, needs more money for books. You realise that you're going to have to pay for information and it isn't going to come cheap. While you're wondering how much to offer and how to do this politely, the sage suddenly announces, Of course, for a goodly sum in gold, I could get you into the library. Who knows what you might not find in there? You can ask the sage about various matters, but you'll have to pay him for each answer you get. He will accept gold pieces or any treasure items of equal value. You can choose what you want to ask him, but you must pay for every answer you get. And he demands payment in advance, and he does not haggle. So, I don't think we've got any money to begin with. No, no, we've got no money. So, all of these options are very unhelpful. Ooh, here's an intriguing clue. It says, if the sage has given you an item, you must follow his directions. That's intriguing. So, there's all sorts we could actually ask about. Afflictions, the library, where the count is, relatives of the count, what's in the crypt, and Natasia, the missing village girl. But, yeah, sadly... We just have to leave the sage to his musty old books and manuscripts. Okay, slightly odd paragraph. It doesn't feel like it follows on very neatly from the previous one, but it is the right one, I've checked. After careful searching, you find a secret door in the passage on the north wall, some ten feet from the door at the end of the passage. You open it and enter a bare chamber with a half-open door in the east wall. Standing guard here are two zombies bearing pole arms, your faith will not protect you against these mindless but thoroughly trained guards. Fight the zombies one at a time at the doorway. Like a sensible person. First zombie has a skill of six and a stamina of six. The second zombie has a skill of seven and a stamina of six. I'm going to roll some dice. That is hands down the most insane fight I think I've ever run on this podcast. The 
first zombie went down without doing any damage to me, pretty much as expected. Second zombie, on the other hand, did 12 points of damage to me, reducing my stamina total to three. I've just never seen myself roll quite so atrociously badly and the monster roll quite so atrociously well at once. Absolute madness. So what should have been a cursory combat encounter leaves me somewhat filleted by a secret ninja zombie. So I'm definitely going to have some more provisions. I'm going to have a cheese toasty and a deep fried battered Mars bar of a comfort food. That gets me to 11. And I guess for pudding question mark, I'll have some mushroom soup. And that gets me back up to 15. So feeling presumably slightly queasy from such an enormously hefty repast. I will press on. You search the zombies, but they have nothing of value. You pass through the half-open door in the east wall and enter another bare chamber. Here, there is a flight of stone steps leading up, and the walls are lit with torches in sconces. You climb the steps, and when you get to the top, you are standing under the shaft of moonlight from a tiny, circular window high on the north wall. Do you have the lycanthropy affliction or major lycanthropy? Oh, easy for me to say. Or major lycanthropy affliction. I have neither. There are two doors in this bare chamber, so you decide to open one of them. Do you want to open the door in the south corner of the west wall, or the silver-handled door in the middle of the south wall? Let's go for the silver-handled door. That's an intriguing detail. Also makes the room stick in the mind a little bit more. You enter a lounge where nondescript carpets and plain wooden furniture litter the scene. You notice wall hangings displaying a bewildering variety of herbs and other plants and an open door to the west. From that doorway, a man enters. He looks absent-mindedly at you. He is middle-aged and has a mane of greying black hair tapering to a widow's peak above his face, which is dominated by his pale green eyes. He is dressed simply in white and grey robes, and he carries a tray with a decanter of goblets, which he puts down as he greets you. I am Gunther Heydrich. What is your business here? He asks you. He seems kindly enough. Will you talk to him or attack him, being distrustful of any member of the Heydrich family? Well, on this occasion, I am going to go straight for my sword, because even if Gunther Heydrich is not a vampire engaged in sucking the blood of the innocent and the innocent adjacent. He's still an enabler, I'm sure. Unless he's a prisoner here, which could also be the case. No, I've decided he's a wrong one. I'm going to stab him. Gunther carries no weapon and you can slay him easily. However, as you do, he lays a hand on your neck and whispers a curse on you. You feel a stabbing pain. Lose three stamina points. Stamina now back down to 12. And when you check, you can feel a blood-wet and painfully sore patch of skin. You now have the curse of the healer, so record this in your afflictions box. Think I might have made a boo-boo. Searching the rooms, you turn up three gold pieces. Hooray, gold. But nothing else of value. You return to the landing, open the west door there. 
Opening the west door, you can see a corridor stretching out towards the west before you. It is well lit, and a thick piled crimson carpet runs along the centre of the tiled floor. There is a door close by on the north wall, and another a little further along. And you can also see that there is a door facing you at the end of the corridor, and that the corridor also turns south at that point. We can close this door and open the south one on the landing if you haven't done so already. Open the north door closest to you, open the second door in the north wall, or open the west door facing you, or follow the corridor round to the south. Well, the nearest door is the north door closest, so we'll go for that. You open the door and trigger a magical trap. There is a searing flash of light and heat. You lose four stamina points. Stamina now eight. So once I've finished reading this, it might be time to eat even more. You are partially blinded and can barely see in the darkened room beyond. However, you can just make out the shape of a four-armed skeletal figure with glowing green eye sockets, armed with a scythe bearing down upon you. You can either fight it weakened as you are, or try to shut the door and flee. I will take fleeing, please. Roll two dice and add three to the total, and compare the result to your skill. So we're looking for a seven or lower. Five, that's not great. So we need a two. A one! Oh, wow. Fantastic. Five and a one makes six, and three is nine. That's less than my skill. I shut the door. Back in the corridor, do you want to open the north door along the corridor, the west door further along the corridor, or follow the corridor around to the south? First things first, let's have another few provisions, uh, taking us up to 16. Packing of mini cheddars and a pop-tart, I reckon. Uh, let's try the next north door. They can't both be full of skeletons. You open the door and peer into a large, dark room. You take a torch from the corridor to light a lamp in here and then look around. On a block of black marble draped with black and crimson silk sheets is a dark wood coffin. Your heart beats rapidly as you advance upon it. But the menace is not within it, it is around you. Thickening and swirling in the air is a rosy smoky mist which advances upon you with solid tentacles trying to strangle you. You cannot see to escape, so you must fight this weird entity. Do you have a magic sword? I do not. Your weapon is useless against the enveloping, choking mist. The tentacles wrap round you and smother the life out of you. Before you could even deal with the first of the Count's coffins, you have met your doom. So, I've been recording for an hour... I think that's probably a reasonable point to call a halt. I have to say I'm partially motivated by just how much I'm enjoying Volta the Vampire and not wanting to spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it. Like me, I haven't read it before. I'm also anxious to go back and redo the early stages and see if I can do slightly better. This is right up my street, but I think it's also pretty cleverly designed as well. It'll be interesting to see if it can sustain that clever design over the course of the whole book. But for the moment, I'm going to go away, play again, and I'll be back for you in just a couple of seconds with some closing remarks. Tatty bye!
Vault of the Vampire is great. It's not one I've played before, but it's immediately been added to my list of favourite books I've covered on this podcast. Looking back over the more recent episodes, it's probably the best book in the fighting fantasy series since Midnight Rogue, and certainly the best book since we hit book 30. It's fair to say the 30s haven't been the strongest period in fighting fantasy history, though there has been plenty to enjoy along the way. Part of why I think it's great is personal, and I'm going to cover that first because it is the sort of thing where your mileage may vary. Obviously, there's no such thing as an objective review. The act of engaging with any form of media is intensely subjective, even if you feel you've got good arguments to support your viewpoint. But subjectivity itself is also a spectrum. There's always going to be things that push your personal buttons and things that you think are applicable to a wider audience. Vault of the Vampire does a number of things that were always going to endear it to me personally, and it makes sense to get that out of the way before I try and make my case for why I think it's a great game book beyond those factors. The first, and in some ways least interesting factor from a critical perspective, is that it's got a theme and aesthetic that I absolutely love. I said in my introduction that I have a strong fondness for horror in general, and gothic horror in particular. Vault of the Vampire feels like a hammer horror movie come to life, and that was always going to play well with me. Obviously, if you prefer classic fantasy tropes, there's stuff here that's not going to land as well, but if you present me with a headless horseman, a castle filled with mad people and spectres, and a finale that combines elements of Hammer Dracula films and their loose retelling of the Elizabeth Bathory story, I'm going to be happy. But I'm not some chump who likes horror unconditionally. I mean, I might be some chump, but I don't like horror unconditionally. I've spent far too much of my adult life sucking the joy out of things I like by analysing them in exhaustive detail for it to be that easy. You have to do more than just flash a set of fangs and expect me to be impressed. What Volta the Vampire does is infuse every encounter with a subtle or not-so-subtle sense of gothic melodrama and excess. The horror clichés are here, but the book maintains its own identity as well, and it's a tough job balancing the demands of the hero's journey, one in which overcoming obstacles are a defining feature, and the madness and futility which characterise the horror genre. It would have been easy, I think, to present a world of brutality and utterly pervasive evil, but Volta the Vampire has at least as many sympathetic characters as it does real villains, and that mixture of light and shade makes the world feel better realised and more functional. Horror works best when it takes you on a journey with peaks and troughs and presents a world in which some kind of norms are present to act as a contrast to the nightmares. The truly great slasher movies, for example, take the time to present you with something familiar and relatable before the bodies start piling up. Whether that be a road trip with friends or teenage babysitters, there's something there which is familiar and comfortable which then gets violated by the story. Castle Hadric isn't less horrible because there's a bunch of people in there just trying to get by. It's more horrible. The text never fully addresses how much they all know about Rainer Hadric and what keeps them there, and that space in the story forces the reader to speculate. Gunther Hadric, the Count's brother, seems trapped by family responsibility and wants to do something but lacks the will or the strength to take action himself. I can empathise with that, I worked for a bank for a while, and I knew intellectually that the most moral thing I could do would be to set fire to the place at the earliest opportunity, but I also needed money to spend on alcohol and cigarettes, so 
I contented myself with merely being terrible at my job. We all make these kinds of devil's bargains. Other characters in the castle, like the alchemist and the archivist, seem more focused on their own concerns than anything else. Are they willfully blind to the Count's evil, or are they simply so wrapped up in their own stuff that they simply haven't noticed it? Either answer is uncomfortable. You also get a sense of the wider dynamics of the Heydrick family across this and previous generations, and that's something I very much like, because I studied history to degree level once upon a time, and if there's one thing that differentiates modern and pre-modern societies, it's the importance of family. In earlier generations, there's a great deal of activity where the family is the fundamental organising unit in ways that perhaps corporations and governments are fundamental organising units today. In a sense, especially in the upper strata of society, the concept of family was a kind of business. And I think this is actually very hard for modern folk to get their head around psychologically, because we tend to think of family as a network of support and obligation whose activity and expression is broadly confined to the domestic sphere. We don't tend to think of family as a project. Even the most nepotistic families in the spheres of politics, business and crime don't quite capture the importance pre-modern societies in Western Europe tended to place on family. We live in an age where individuality makes understanding the concept of one's core identity being subordinate to a larger identity intuitively difficult to grasp. It's something that a lot of fantasy stories struggle to convey as well, although Song of Ice and Fire has a decent stab at it, even if it winds up lording individuality over filial piety. This is a typically long-winded way of me saying that the presence of additional members of the Heydrich family in the castle helps to locate this story more convincingly in a pre-modern setting, and it's something I'd very much like to see more game books explore. I think it would be fun to have a game book where knowing what ecclesiastical rank a cousin of the main antagonist was able to obtain was in some way crucial to foiling a plot, perhaps involving the marriage of their second daughter to a second cousin from a more prestigious branch of the family. Maybe that's not fun for normal people, but it's fun for people like me with broken brains. Beyond that, there's also a bunch of more obviously disturbing encounters in the castle, You've got various skeletal and zombie servants of the Count, a number of rats and wolves, and the various spectral entities that swarm through the corridors and rooms. My two favourite encounters from a flavour perspective are a gnome that runs the boat across the river if you take the scenic route to the castle. He's accompanied by a lovely illustration that combines classic gnomish attributes, the floppy hat and the long beard, with a deeply malevolent cast. He's something familiar and comfortable, made uncanny and menacing, and I always enjoy that. My absolute top pick, though, is the necrotic jelly, the hideous results of a mad doctor experimenting on himself and transforming his form into a ghastly ooze that has just enough human features to render it truly awful. It's a fairly standard fight encounter, but one which comes loaded down with a terrible implied backstory. And it also does something, I think, which is quite important, which is, by and large, monsters don't live in castles. People live in castles, and people can be monsters. The final battle with Count Heydrich takes in a whole bunch of classic vampire elements. You can fling holy water at him. If you start beating him, he'll turn into a mist to escape to one of his spare coffins. And there's a mechanic where he'll try and bite you if he gets sufficiently desperate. 
it's one of the few final showdowns in the series that feels truly epic and packs in a number of surprises that makes it, for me, one of the most memorable fights in the whole series. I think only Balthus Dyer from Citadel of Chaos gives it a run for its money in terms of sheer spectacle. This is horror done right. The second element that I want to touch on, which also hinges on personal taste, is the scope of the adventure. I tend to prefer my adventure game books to have depth rather than breadth. I'd rather have a few locations explored in detail than lots of locations depicted in a more superficial manner. That's not to say I don't like a quest that takes me on an epic journey, I do, but when I think of the books that have tended to stay with me, it's the ones with the more narrow scope that leap to mind. Citadel of Chaos, Death Trap Dungeon, House of Hell, Midnight Rogue all feel memorable to me because of their relatively tight settings. Even Forest of Doom, which has a larger scope geographically restricts itself to a single biome and explores the possibilities in depth, as does City of Thieves and Demons of the Deep. The map of Vault of the Vampire is tight, the castle is small but densely packed with incident, all of which share that common aesthetic that I alluded to earlier. There's a really nice map on DeviantArt by uh, QPIII, which shows just how tightly packed the setting is. There's not a whole lot of physical space, but there's a lot going on within that space. Now, those are matters broadly of personal taste, but I think now is the time to stray into less personal territory and talk about how functionally interesting the design is. I'm sure there are people listening who enjoy more expansive stories, who want to travel far and wide in their adventures, and that's entirely valid. It's obviously fine to prefer a simpler design that allows your character to cover more ground, but whether it tickles your particular fancy or not, the fact remains that there's some tremendous formal design skills on display in Volta the Vampire. Not only do the various people you meet all have a reason for being there, they also have relationships with each other, and how they react to you can be influenced by what interactions you've had with other people that they might like or dislike. This both creates depth in terms of the world building, but also gives you a sense of the passage of time, which I know from designing my own books is something very hard to do well in a game book setting. A lot of game books feel similar to old school video games. If you open this door, there will always be a pair of goblins playing dice behind it. Those goblins are frozen in a perpetual game of chance. If there were a maze before their room, which took you four hours to solve because you kept going round and round in circles, they would still be there, dice in hand when you kick down the door. It's like a vendor in a computer role-playing game who never sleeps or shuts their shop but simply waits avariciously come rain or shine in case there's a chance to make a few coppers from a passing adventurer. Part of this is simply an element of the format. Some encounters in a game book are always going to be simpler than others and some events are going to need to be fully scripted. While it might be cool to have a little table to roll on when you kick down the goblin's door which lets you know what they were doing, playing dice, eating, bickering, sleeping or what have you, perhaps even giving an advantage or a disadvantage depending on the activity, that's not always practical or desirable. If the character might need a set of loaded dice later in the adventure, those goblins are going to have to be playing dice. But if you can sprinkle in some encounters which are dependent on things that may or may not have happened before, that can go a long way towards creating the illusion of a world that could 
perhaps still exist when you aren't there to experience it. There's lots of this in Volta the Vampire. Your actions feel like they really do have consequences, and so do the actions of other people. There's a character you can meet several times, and your early interaction with them can create a surprisingly wide range of outcomes towards the end of the gamebook. And what I really love is that there's things you learn at the end which can make sense of some of their behaviour early on. That is ridiculously sophisticated stuff for a gamebook to try and take on. That aha moment where you realise that their interaction with you was coloured by an agenda that only makes sense in retrospect is awesome. There's also locked doors which you will pass and only later return to once you've obtained a key. That's a lovely thing. Backtracking is another thing that's hard to do in gamebooks. Not least because it tends to turn your master map into a bit of a mess while you're writing. But here, near the start, you can look at that crypt gate and think, there's something horrible down there. But it's not until the final act of the adventure that you'll be able to return and go down to confirm your worst suspicions. I mentioned how neatly the book uses linear designs to make returning to a previous hub feel natural, and that attention to design suffuses the whole book. It's a relatively easy book to explore in the broad strokes thanks to the linearity, but it took me a long time to exhaustively explore all the different possible actions and permutations, and that's something I just really enjoy doing once I've beaten a book. The ones that I tend to dread exploring are the ones where there's a vast map with hundreds of different paths but few options for encounters to play out differently each time. Speaking of encounters, there's plenty of skill being shown here as well. There's nothing earth-shattering in a mechanical sense, but what the mechanics do nicely is add to the story of the encounter. This is especially noticeable in the fights. The large ghoul is a good example. A ghoul with a paralysing attack is nothing new, but it's a suitably horrific mechanic which can lead to your character being eaten alive. A fight with a werewolf that can lead to you getting lycanthropy is functionally the same mechanic, but it also tells a little story that makes the fight more memorable, and it can even come back later. There's a lot of these little effects whereby a fight has consequences beyond just the loss of stamina. It's simple stuff, but extremely effective. The biggest mechanical change is the introduction of faith as a stat. I always have mixed feelings about additional mechanics like this. On the one hand, I think there's plenty you can do with just the core mechanics if you're prepared to iterate on them in clever ways. On the other hand, Sometimes you're trying to capture something that the core mechanics just don't quite manage to encapsulate. And the faith mechanic feels like a good fit for this kind of story. Faith is something that lurks in the background of many vampire stories, though it's often de-emphasised in modern versions since we live in a more secular society. It's also something that would be hard to easily replicate with any of the existing stats. What's interesting to me about Faith is less that it's something that slots nicely into the story, but more that it's essentially luck 2.0. What I mean by that is that this is probably how luck should always have worked. Luck is very much the ugly duckling of the original stats. It's simultaneously the most interesting and the most problematic of the mechanics. Now, all stats have their issues. Stamina works fine in combat and as a generally easily depleted resource but it suffers from not being in the 7 to 12 range that allows it to be tested by rolling 2d6. You can test skill, but you can't really use it as a resource in the same way as stamina, not least because losing skill always feels brutal, often 
even in a book where the fights are very easy, losing skill just has a nasty feel to it. Luck is theoretically the best of both worlds. You can test it and you can use it as a resource. The only problem is that because you lose points whenever you test your luck, it creates a disincentive to use the mechanic too frequently because you need to create an external source for replenishing that resource. Now, provisions and bandages and the like might be fine for replacing stamina, but doing the same thing for luck doesn't feel quite right, so you have to build replenishing luck into the text itself. That creates a resource sink for the one really limited resource, which is available paragraphs in a traditional 400 paragraph fighting fantasy book, added to which players will generally accept multiple healers or multiple sources of fresh provisions in the text, but each luck point really needs to have a bespoke encounter tied to it. Magical potions and similar things are a way round this, but even they don't always feel quite right. So you've got this cool mechanic that you're kind of disincentivized to use and which also creates balance problems. What Keith Martin has done with Faith is demonstrate a way of having a resource that can vary and can be used as often as you like. By removing the cost of testing luck, you open a very useful door. By setting Faith at a lower maximum threshold than skill, you also provide scope for improving the stat without breaking the threshold of 12, which is where certain elements of the system start to break down slightly. By making a Faith roll 1d6 plus a fixed value, you can also customise the difficulty of those individual faith tests. He should probably have just given faith a starting value rather than randomly determining it, but that's something you can say about any of the stats in Fighting Fantasy, which does suffer huge balance issues thanks to the range of the starting stats. Martin demonstrates the value of the approach he's taken by having about 10,000 faith tests through the course of the adventure. Should there have been quite so many faith tests? Probably not. But the fact that the book doesn't break down on the basis of the frequent tests testifies to the power of the system that he's created. Partly, it's that he's judged the outcome of failing faith tests well. It's relatively rare that you'll die from a failed faith test. And if you're thinking that's how luck ought to work too, then congratulations, you are thinking like a good designer at least in my occasionally humble opinion. I'm just lucky and grateful that I'm still at the early stage of writing my current game book and can broadly rip off this approach for my own work because that is something I'm definitely going to do. He also finds some fun things to do with luck as well. There's a brilliant moment where failing a luck test will see you hounded down a flight of stairs by some unnecessarily aggressive bats. Martin then gives you the option to try again, as many times as you like in fact, until you either get past the death hamsters or decide you've burned too much of your precious luck. This is someone who really gets how systems work, and when you look into his background and the other role-playing games he's worked on, it probably shouldn't come as a surprise. If I was going to nitpick this book, and I am, I'd say that there's probably a little bit too much reliance on random rolls in general. Faith can have a disproportionate effect on the adventure, and there's lots of additional variants created at different points in the narrative. That's genuine nitpicking though, because I really like rolling dice, and there's still plenty of scope for actual decisions in the text as well. 
The only other proper criticism I'm going to make is that there's a very tedious puzzle which takes approximately a week to solve, even once you know how to do it. I'm not the biggest fan of puzzles in fantasy game books, so that's probably another thing to chalk up to personal taste. I either like a lot of puzzles or no puzzles, I think. I don't think I like any kind of middle ground on that. And the fact that there's only one of these puzzles makes me loathe to begrudge it too much in this situation. The artwork in general, I should mention, is very strong. Martin McKenna's work is a great fit for the material. He's got a very dark style, which particularly suits the gothic tone. I particularly like some of his female characters, where a smoothly pale white face sits amid the rest of the dark shading and creates a really nice contrast. I was also delighted by his grisly illustration for the necrotic jelly that I mentioned earlier. There is also a good and horrifying picture for the final paragraph, which I think is something that should be standard for all fighting fantasy books. Getting a nice picture, or a nasty picture, as in this case, really adds to the impact of finishing the book successfully. There's more things I could talk about, how the affliction system works, and the presence of magic and the way he makes use of objects within the text to build redundancy. All of those things are pretty good, but I think I've hit all the big things I want to talk about with regard to this book. It's nice to be finishing an episode with more nice things left to say, but I've probably waxed lyrical enough by this point. It's a top entry in the franchise and it's been a joy to both play and to pull apart. Martin will be back several times before we finish the main series and I, for one, cannot wait. I do hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another bonus episode when I'll be covering a fascinating and doomed attempt to mash up comics and game books. There's also the first episode of Popular Antiquarian to look forward to if old media floats your boat more generally. If you want to get in touch with me, then you can do so by emailing me at hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.